Welcome to this podcast, which focuses on randomized controlled trials. We're fortunate to have Meredith Rosner to talk to us about this subject. Meredith is a professor of criminology at the Centre for Social Research and Methods at the Australian National University. Her research focuses on the role of emotions, rituals, the built environment, and technology and justice practices. This includes work on the emotional dynamics of restorative justice conferences between victim and offenders for serious crime, and research on the micro-level dynamics of jury deliberation, the role of courtroom design on access to justice and the presumption of innocence, and the role of video technology in courts. So let's get started. Um, Meredith, you've got a really impressive range of interests there. Could you tell our audience a little bit more about the sort of sociolegal and criminological research you do, just to, to fill out what I've said already? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Linda. Um, it's, it, I have found it hard to sort of articulate a grand narrative about my work, but I think that um, what brings it together is that I really am interested in mixed methods and also work that really tries to understand how people experience the justice system. I'm particularly interested in ritual and emotions and social interactions and so on, but really about how folks who come in contact with the criminal justice system, both lay people and professionals, um, experience that process. So is that court that could be criminal court or new or innovative ways of doing justice, such as restorative justice or practices of therapeutic jurisprudence or so on. So today we're going to talk about experiments, but really I, in my work, draw on a range of different methods, including qualitative and quantitative to study this. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. And as you mentioned, one of the methods you've used is what you call experiments. I've called randomized controlled trials. Could you just explain a little bit about why what we're talking about has different labels? Yeah, and, and really, um, it's one reason it has different labels is because they're sort of overlapping families of experimental research. So I'll talk about both of those types of, of research they're done. And I've been involved in both of those over the course of my career. So in general, we use randomized controlled trials um, or randomized controlled experiments when we want to answer very specific practical questions about sort of the relationship between X and Y or the impact of X on Y. If I'm, you know, <laughs> with caution, say kind of the big answer of causality, right? Um, the experiments are sort of suited to that. So for instance, in research that I've done, um, we're interested in how the design of the criminal courtroom, in particular, the placement of the defendant in a dock impacts perceptions of guilt or interfered with the presumption of innocence. So there you have a really clear kind of X and Y. Does putting someone in the dock cause them to um, be seen more guilty by jurors, for instance? Years ago, this um, question first came into our head part of, as part of a research team where my colleague, David Tate from Western Sydney, had been invited to be an expert witness for a large terrorism trial in Sydney. And in that trial, the defense was arguing that holding their clients behind glass in a dock, in a secure dock, was prejudicial to the jury. And after David gave his testimony, the judge decided that at that time, this was about 12 years ago, there was no, to quote him, scientific evidence that the dock was prejudicial. So we sort of took that language and used that to design an experiment to explicitly test whether or not there was a relationship between the location of the accused and jurors' perceptions of the accused. So we held a live trial in a real courtroom with actors playing all the roles and with jury eligible members of the public coming in to act as mock jurors. So in a real courtroom um, with actors playing the roles of the judges, counsel, witnesses, defendant um, in kind of their real regalia, 
we held the exact same trial with the exact same actors, same evidence, same everything. But the only thing we varied, and this is the what, what the social scientists call the experimental manipulation, is that one third of the time, jurors are randomly assigned to watch the trial where the defendant sat in a traditional dock. One third of the time, he sat in a secure dock. And one third of the time, he sat next to his barrister at the bar table. And so because of sort of the simplicity of this random assignment, we knew that um, the three groups of mock jurors were sort of statistically equivalent. And then we could reasonably conclude that if there was any difference in how each group of jurors assessed the culpability of the accused or their verdict preference, we could reasonably conclude that that difference was due to the location of the accused. So it was due to the dock, if you will. So it's a really kind of like, even though it's a quantitative method, it's a really simple one. You don't you don't need advanced kind of statistical skills to be able to kind of make that conclusion, which is one reason I really like it. It's really sort of elegant and simple design. And by the way, as you know, Linda, we did find that there was a difference. So we did conclude that, the, that in that case that the doc was prejudicial. So that's an example of a mock jury experiment. And that's um, what, what I call a mock jury experiment to talk about terminology. And that is a kind of has a long tradition in psychology and it's part of the larger family of randomized controlled trials. This research has traditionally taken place in psychology laboratories with undergraduate students as the sample and rightfully criticized for, for kind of the challenges to external validity because of that. More recently, there's been a move to doing sort of more simulated live um, experiments in more realistic settings. For example, what we tried to do in a real courtroom where we got jurors, people who actually represented what the jury pool come in and actually watch a live trial and actually deliberate about it in the case. So this is an attempt to make the simulated condition, which is, of course, a simulation. It's of sorts, a laboratory, right? But make it more realistic. So I think when you think about placing experiments within the realm of socio-legal studies, it's worth kind of recognizing that there's two overlapping families of, of experimental research. So what I just described above is a simulated mock jury experiment. And there's a huge body of research in this area, largely drawn from psychology, looking at all sorts of interesting things like um, stereotyping, prejudice, the complexity of evidence, judicial instructions, the gender and racial composition of juries, and so on and so forth. The second family is sometimes called field experiments, and that's when you experiment with real elements of the criminal justice practice and test the impact on actual participants in the system. And there's been a huge growth of this in criminology in recent years, for instance, in different areas of policing um, and to some extent in courts and probation. So, for example, I was involved in a large randomized controlled trial. So here, Linda, I would use the term randomized controlled trial of restorative justice led by Larry Sherman and Heather Strang at Cambridge and evaluated by um, Joanna Shaplin and colleagues at Sheffield. And so in this type of experiment, unlike the mock jury experiment, across a number of real crown courts in London and real people who pleaded guilty to robberies or burglaries, and the victims in these cases were recruited to take part in an experiment where half of them were sentenced as usual in the Crown Court, and the other half took part in a restorative justice conference after their plea and before their sentence in the court. So we followed, and in that restorative justice conference, there was a face-to-face -face meeting between the offender and the victim where they talked about what happened during the offense, how people were affected, and how they could move forward from that. And a report from that meeting went to the judge who could decide to use that when they sentenced. 
So we followed people over time and found a consistent reduction in offending for the restorative justice group, and also a consistent improvement in terms of post-traumatic stress symptoms for victims who met with their offender. So because, again, because of the design of that experiment, we could reasonably conclude that those types of outcomes were because of restorative justice, because the groups were statistically similar at the point of randomization. So this kind of research, kind of to get back to your question, I think it's good at answering the type of really practical policy questions like, does it work or is there an impact? But you need more in-depth qualitative work to understand this process more. Could I just take you back a little bit to um, when you were explaining about one of the experiments that you did with the doc? I'm just thinking about our international audience, as we know from from all our research that we've we've done and talked about over the years. Not every country has a doc. Could you just explain what a doc is and what's the difference between a secure doc and a regular or standardized doc? Yeah, it's a great point, and that's that's one of the reasons I think some you you had asked about. Um, the kind of preparation that's involved in doing this work. And part of that was really kind of going around the world and looking at different practices to make sure that the um, different experiments, the different experimental manipulations actually reflect what different courtrooms around the world look like. So in many common law countries, um, you know, Great Britain, Australia, um, Canada, and in the number, growing number of civilian law countries, so for instance, in, in France and, and parts of Germany, so on, you're increasingly seeing um, a criminal trial the accused held in what's called a dock. So it had traditionally been kind of a um, wooded enclosure, but is increasingly securitized where that the defendant is completely encased in glass during, um, during their trial. There's interesting um, exceptions to this in common law countries. So for instance, you might be surprised that the US um, has not had a tradition of enclosing defendants in a dock for over a hundred years now. Um, New Zealand is another case where they don't use the dock as well as in certain Scandinavian countries and, and other parts of Europe. Um, in those cases, the defendant during criminal trial just sits right next to their um, lawyer at the bar table. So anyone familiar with you know, watching American um, crime dramas or courtroom dramas would, would, would be familiar with what that looks like. That's great. Thanks so much um, for that clarification. Now, I can imagine that experiments take quite a lot of organising. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about project design that's involved when you're planning to undertake an experiment of the kind that you've been describing. What was it important for you to do and organise before you began? Yeah, so these are not projects that just you kind of jump into and um, they're not they're not really inductive pro projects where you can kind of jump into the field and, and see what happens. There's there's a lot a lot of planning involved. Um, you know, as I described before, in terms of before we ran that experiment on the dock, we did a lot of traveling around the world, looking at different courtroom configurations, talking to different stakeholders, visiting different courts, observing. Um, Test, working with architects to test out different configurations and, and test out the kind of audibility and visibility around um, moving people in behind glass and in front of glass. So there's a lot of, um, I guess, pre-testing or preliminary work that's involved, scoping work. We've probably had about a year plus of scoping before we did the actual experiment. Um, and the reason for that is because we really wanted to design something that reflects actual practice, right? We also spent a lot of time um, in a mock jury study experimenting or um, developing the script that we used for the trial. And that's because we wanted the script to be as realistic as possible. Um, and we also, while we wanted it to be realistic, we also wanted the evidence to be complex enough so that it wasn't 
very clear which way the jurors would go. And that's because we were drawing on kind of tradition in psychology where if a decision is too easy to make, then jurors um, or then decision makers won't be kind of drawing on other cues. But we wanted to actually um, see what happens when decisions are not easy to make. So we wrote and rewrote, rewrote a script and tested it with a number of um, with different samples of people to see to get a kind of conviction rate of about 50 percent so that so that we knew that the that that they, it wasn't too easy to um convict or acquit but rather they really had to to draw on all the different kind of decision making skills they have at, at their disposal um and we worked with the judge with a number of judges to write that script in fact in the um terrorism trial where my colleague david tate was the expert witness that judge who who made that decision at that trial we actually consulted with and he helped us that script was based on that terrorism trial and, and he helped us to consult. So there was a lot of fun and interesting work that you don't normally get to do as associate legal researcher. It was really quite creative and quite fun that we got to kind of write a script and test it out and think it through and kind of, you know, indulge in your sort of creative side a bit. And I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and same with the, the um, field experiment in criminology. So the restorative justice experiment, for example, was again, about a year and a half or two years of, of um, preliminary, preliminary work, managing stakeholders, working across the courts, across probation, across prison. We ran recruiting facilitators and training them. We ran about six to eight months of um, kind of a phase one trial where we weren't randomizing. We were just accepting all cases. And that was just to um, make sure that we actually had the procedures down in place so that things wouldn't go wrong when we switched into the randomization process. So, so there's a lot of work involved and that sort of gets to, um, you know, would, would, I would encourage you if you're thinking of doing this kind of research to think of yourself as working part of a large collaborative team. Um, this is not something that you would sort of want to do on your own as a PhD researcher, for example. It's something that really does involve kind of an interdisciplinary, large, complex team. That's that's great. That's really good advice, actually, for early career academics who may be thinking about this, because it sounds like it's quite a costly experience. It is costly. And I should say that I've been involved with this type of work at all stages of my career. So I, I worked on it kind of before my PhD it was the first research project I ever really worked on was a large scale randomized control trial. A lot of data that was for my PhD was from the restorative justice trial. And then I've gone on into the mock jury research and kind of you know, as I've progressed in my career, moved more towards kind of leading that kind of research. But it's certainly something that is, you know, early career, early career researchers could be involved in, but, but probably as part of a larger team. So Meredith, I was quite disappointed to hear you saying that um, experiments were fun, because it occurs to me that all socio-legal research is fun, um, but I'll leave that for now. I wonder if I could ask you my favourite question. Uh, we're very keen to explore the underbelly of research, you know, what actually goes wrong when you're using these methods. And I wonder if you could tell us, um, what, what, did the, what was your experience of using randomised control trials and were there things that went wrong? Yeah, so all research is fun, of course, and that's why we do this. But I think that there is something really fun about the experiments. And that's partially because what I said before about being able to indulge in your creative side and kind of imagine courtroom and create your own sort of courtroom dramas, but also because the experiment, the data collection period is actually really quick. You know, we ran, it was over a couple of weeks, we ran, you know, something like 16 trials back to back each time bringing in about 100 
um, or you know, 50 to 100 participants. So, we're, so it was a really intense period of kind of working all around the clock to, um, and at the end of every day, you know, quickly inputting the data and kind of analyzing it as you go and getting really excited about the results you're finding. And it was kind of, because it was so condensed, that makes it really thrilling and, and really exciting to do while needing that really long buildup and kind of all that work that goes into it. I found working, I'm not, a, even though I do mixed methods of quantitative work, I'm not a, um, you know, especially savvy or sophisticated statistician. My, my skills are relatively basic. And I like the randomized control trial because I think it's actually really elegant and really simple and really beautiful. Um, it's something that even I could do um, as someone that doesn't have extra sophisticated skills. Um, I think that it's true that if you do want that kind of um, to answer questions or kind of address questions of causality, then then the experiment, the experiment of the randomized control trial is going to give you more robust information than, for instance, quasi experimental design or, you know, um, match controls or like propensity score matching or any of like the much more sophisticated statistical techniques. I think it's really simple, but really beautiful. Um, in terms of the dirty underbelly, it's um, obviously much, you know, dirtier in practice than, than, than it sounds. Although I've not experienced any problems with the randomization process going awry. I have heard of, of that happening where you are randomizing people into groups and afterwards you realize that they're not exactly. Um, you're ideally hoping that if your sample's large enough, each group has, you know, that roughly equal numbers of men and women and people across different ages and political preferences and, um, you know, sexual orientation and kind of a range of different variables that you might want to measure. And um, when that doesn't happen, then that prevent then the statistics become more complicated. But that's something that I haven't had to deal with. Um, it's certainly hard to manage a really complex process. And it's also, I think, in some ways, that debate around the randomized control trial being the quote unquote gold standard, um, which is widely recognized, makes it easy to sell to some people in practice, but sometimes harder to sell because it's actually really complex and actually really hard and really expensive. Meredith, could I just go on to ask you about how you analyze the data that you gather from these experiments? Yeah, as I mentioned before, I'm not a... Um, you know, especially sophisticated statistician, which is why I'm drawn to experiments. They're relatively simple. Really, all you need to do is make sure that you're recording the data, that you have a good method for um, collecting data. And that's why we had, um, you know, when I was younger and I was the research assistant, I myself was kind of at the end of each day inputting data um, and, and making sure that we had all the information collected um, in terms of in terms of the experimental manipulation, how people were responding to surveys, um, and so on. And as I started to lead these projects, I also made sure that that was a really valuable element that we had, you know, a large team of research support who were there on the day, kind of constantly keeping track of data and, and creating um, simple and effective ways to kind of just document and, and manage that data. And that makes it much easier in terms of in terms of data analysis. And then ideally, it's just a really simple kind of t-test to see if there's any statistically significant differences between group A, group B, and group C. Um, if your sample's large enough, you can kind of drill down deeper. So for example, in our doc study, we did have, I think, like 450 people. So it's a relatively large sample. And we were able to see, for instance, um, jurors responded to a question about how strong they thought the evidence was. and so 
this was kind of to test whether or not we were able to get that 50% um, conviction rate. And we found a really interesting finding, which was that for jurors who thought that the evidence was really strong, that the prosecution evidence was really strong, or the jurors who thought the prosecution evidence was really weak, so who had a very clear view on whether or not the defendant was guilty or not based on the prosecution evidence. In those cases, the doc didn't make the, the impact of where the, the, there was no impact on where the accused sat. But when jurors were um, in the kind of middle, middle quart, quartile, so the middle 50% about in terms of the strength of the prosecution evidence, that's when you saw an even bigger impact of the doc. So because our sample was large enough, we were able to kind of draw out that slightly deeper analysis. Um, but in terms of kind of, you know, simple pieces of statistic, statistics, it, it's, it's quite useful. Another thing that we have done is also collect qualitative data to go with um, this with these experiments, which we actually haven't analyzed yet. So that's some, another project for another time. We, um, the jurors in, in our mock jury study actually deliberated and we recorded those deliberations. So we actually have um, you know, hours and hours and hours of tape of people talking um, about their decision making, which I think is a really rich source of data. And then we also did some debriefing focus groups, essentially, with with jurors after after the experiment was over, where we got their impact information about the trial. And that's all kind of qualitative data that I'm hoping in our spare time we'll we'll want make sense of. I didn't know you'd collected that data as well. That sounds like it's going to be gold dust. Um, and it's interesting that you've talked about qualitative data and how you've used it alongside the quants. And I wonder if I could just go back to something you said a few minutes ago about randomised control trials being seen as the gold standard. Um, and I suppose that is for people, social scientists who aspire to natural scientific methods, because I know you use a range of methods. I wonder if you could just say perhaps a little bit more about that. In the social sciences, that randomized control model, randomized control trial model is clearly based on the medical research model, right? Uh, we're all familiar, we're all very familiar in the past year and a half with how medical research takes place and and and, and what the um, experiments look like to test the effectiveness of, of a new drug. Um, and that's pretty much exactly how it's translated into, into the criminal justice realm. It's not just in criminal justice, it's, it's really popular in all sorts of areas of social science, education, social policy, welfare. Um, there's a range of kind of social policy and, and social justice areas where randomized control trials are being increasingly used. And they have, um, partially because of that sort of the, the sheen, I guess, of medical research, the, the kind of scientific rigor that comes, um, that purports to come with it being part uh, a, a science, gives it that um, gold standard um, term. And that means that it has been, it has very quickly come to take, to dominate many, many fields. And that's very consistent with kind of a growing agenda of kind of efficiency and, um, and, and what works, right? That what works agenda, which is, um, really commonplace, a kind of common part of the discourse now in criminal justice and education research and social policy research. If that's the type of question that you're asking, then randomized controlled trials are really well designed to answer those types of questions. Thank you. And you've recommended three texts for people interested in this method um, to read. Now, I wonder if you could just walk us through them. The first one is Larry Sherman's Evidence and Liberty. Why, why that? Yeah. So, um, I set 
Sherman's Evidence and Liberty and also a response by Mike Huff. And I pick those as because I think they're kind of two paradigmatic examples of what this debate is about, about the gold standard and, and about sort of the epistemology and the ethics of, of randomized control trials and experimental criminology. Larry Sherman's at Cambridge and I worked with him as part of the restorative justice trial. And he's probably one of the strongest voices in the world right now arguing for the imperative of, of experiments. He's really helped to create a professional culture that's open to randomized controlled trials, both within the academy and within a really broad range of policing and criminal justice institutions. Cambridge University has you know, developed a kind of master's degree in evidence-based policing where they've trained senior police executives from around the world in the gold standard and in, in randomized control trials. He's been really successful in that realm. And in this article, this is his sort of statement on the great potential of RCTs to reduce human suffering, to really, really try to um, unpack kind of the deepest issues that are facing us as a society and offering, in his words, you know, evidence-based solutions. Now, there's a really lively debate about this. And so it's worth including a response there was many, many responses to that Sherman article. I only picked one, but if you're interested in it, this was published in Criminology and Criminal Justice. And I think they published about four or five different responses. I picked one by Mike Huff, because I think it really encapsulates a lot of the critique around, around randomized control trials. And Huff asks Sherman to really kind of walk back on some of the grand claims that he makes about evidence and liberty and, and the the goal to kind of reduce human suffering. And Huff reminds us, that we need to consider the complexity of personal and social change, right? Um, and and the kind of, especially when you're talking about criminal offending and you're talking about reducing offending and you're talking about reducing recidivism. Most of the research around kind of the effectiveness of specific programs shows it's very rare that one program is actually going to change the trajectory, someone's assistance trajectory, right? Um, and that's a, that presents a problem for randomized controlled trials, which kind of want to show the effectiveness of a specific program or, or, or way of doing justice. Huff reminds us, like many, many kind of scholars in the area of desistance from crime and criminology, that personal change is really complex um, and um, hard to kind of characterize in terms of how, in terms of the response to a particular program or, or response to treatment, if you want to use the term that the, that the from drawing from medical science. And also the kind of usual problems with generalizability and with external validity that that, exp that field experiments still are um, subject to. So I said both of these articles, and perhaps this is inconsistent, and Linda, I'm welcome to hear your reflections on this, but I actually agree with both of those pieces. Um, and indeed, that's why I sort of see the value of mixed methods, because I, like Sherman, want to reduce human suffering and want to believe in evidence and, and liberty and want to believe that um, certain questions can be answered with, with good research. But I also want to recognize the complexity of, of the human journey and, and the complexity of something as you know multifaceted as criminal offending. Um, and that's why I'm drawn, I think, to mixed methods and to qualitative methods as well as experiments. I think that's a really important point to make because one of the things that I see happening in socio-legal studies is a little bit of tribalism these days, which I don't think is terribly healthy. 
actually, I think understanding when when methods are well placed and when there can be problems with them and using a variety of methods can be is really healthy. So that that's great to hear you saying that. And and you also set a third piece, Borstein and McCabe on jurors of yeah. search. I'll just say one thing in response to that though about about tribalism and and I'll refer you. I'll sneak in another piece by Sherman and Strang, which I forget exactly what it's called. Um, I can look up the reference, but it's about their, they call it experimental ethnography. And it's about kind of combining ethnographic research with experimental research. And it's a really kind of valuable call for this sort of mixed methods work that I would definitely recommend. It's a very inspiring piece for students to read. I set it for methods students every year. Um, the other piece that I set, so the Sherman and Huff debate is about the field experiments in criminology. But the other family of, of randomized control trials, as I spoke about before, is the simulated experiments, so the mock jury experiments. The, the article I set by Bornstein and McCabe is a really kind of classic piece discussing some of the method, methodological strengths and weaknesses of mock jury research. I think it's a great title. It's called what's it, Jurors of the Absurd, the Role of Consequentiality in Jury, jury Simulation Research. And because it's mostly dominated by psychologists, like that's a really sexy title. So, it's, um, so it's, I, I welcome I welcome reading it, and it's um, it's a really kind of good survey for people who are first learning about about mock jury research to go through around the critiques, the valid critiques around verisimilitude, around external validity, and around generalizability, and so on. And it's a great piece piece if you're learning about this area because the thing is with these types of experiments, because you have researcher control, you have very, very high, um, a social scientist call internal validity, you feel quite confident that, um, you know, the change, but the difference between groups is due to your own experimental manipulation, right? Um, you have a high level of internal validity, but what the weakness is, is whether or not you can actually have what social scientists call external validity. So whether or not that um, causal manipulation or that causal pathway can be repeated across all sorts of different, um, you know, situations outside of the laboratory, right, or in different settings. And, and that's a legitimate concern of, of a lot of mock jury research, especially coming from the realm of psychology, where much of it is done in actual laboratories, much of it is done with just kind of transcripts of a trial, much of it is done with psychology undergraduate students um, serving as, as jurors. That's why the work that colleagues and I have been doing in kind of a newer area of, of mock jury research is attempting to have a more realistic, more kind of immersive experience. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Meredith. It's just left to me to thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us about experiments and randomised control trials today. I've learned a lot. So thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Linda. Please visit frontiers.csls.ox.ac.uk to find a list of the publications that have been referred to in this podcast and a reference to a piece of work from our expert that you might also want to read. You can also find other podcasts and reading lists on that page. We hope that you've enjoyed this interview and that you'll listen to the other podcasts in our series. This is an ongoing project, so if you have an idea for a new podcast, just get in touch. Thank you.